Evening, everybody. Uh, Lauren Steinlogge here, sitting, filling in for Rick Clark again. Uh, welcome to the Farm Green Podcast. Uh, as you can see tonight, we have a very special guest, Jeff Moyer from Rodale Institute. But uh, we try, we try to keep it a little loose here and easy. But uh, Rick's favorite first question, and I always like it, Jeff, is what is on your mind right now? Oh, well, uh, so many things. I mean, I, I guess tonight we're probably going to talk a little bit about, you know, uh, rolling and uh, rolling cover crops. And for me, it's just been so fascinating and rewarding to see how many people are starting to take hold of that technology and, and make it their own. I get uh, emails uh, weekly from people who are uh, playing with the idea, everything from uh, grain croppers. Uh, I got, I, I was just helping to host a podcast for some guys that are using the technology for feed plots for deer. And then I was talking to people who are using it in orange groves down in Florida. So it's all over the map, uh, just in this country. And then internationally, of course, there's a lot more going on. So I guess uh, I'm just, uh, I've been slowly stepping back from my daily duties at Rodale Institute as I'm semi-retired from there now, starting this past April and uh, getting to spend more time on, uh, on things that I enjoy, like working with that, that technology. And then the other thing, I think that's really exciting to me is, is the way people are beginning to uh, latch on to some of the, the new certifications that are out there, like the regenerative organic certification, and seeing people link that word regenerative to organic and uh, taking advantage of the marketing out there that, that uh, the marketplace is rewarding them for. So I'm uh, spending a lot of time on that. We can almost call it a night. That was a pretty good introduction. So yeah. <laughs> thank you. But uh, I guess the, the first place I usually like to go is I like to go back in history. And, you know, how, how did uh, Jeff Moyer come to be Jeff Moyer, I guess? You know, can you go back to high school or, you know, what was your thoughts in high school, your education, stuff like that? Yeah, sure. Uh, give you a little bit of background. It's not an exciting history, but uh yeah, I grew up on a, on kind of more like a homestead farm. We had goats and chickens and ducks and uh, we raised, uh, I think it was really just to keep my brothers and I out of jail, you know, and, and it keep us busy. So we did that. Um, my father always had an offsite job, you know, he worked, uh, worked for a large corporation. But part of our farm, a big chunk of it was forested. And I always Anytime I could escape to the woods, that's where I went. So when I got out of high school, I went to forestry school and I had envisioned myself being more like a, uh, a park ranger at Yellowstone or something like that was kind of my, my dream. But I also enjoyed, I, I, was, I was a good student, uh, did fairly well, and I enjoyed math. So I got into surveying and I took forestry and surveying classes and I, then I sort of changed my thought to being a, a land surveyor. When I got out of school in the mid 70s, uh, there just wasn't a lot of opportunities for employment. I found a forestry job in Colorado. My girlfriend was in Pennsylvania. She said, I hope you really like Colorado. Um, and uh, uh, I said, well, yeah, that, I wasn't ready to give up on her. We'd been married 46 years. So I guess that worked out, too. You know, I'm um, 
I'm one of those individuals, I can't explain why, but I feel really blessed. Uh, God's taken good care of me every step of the way and um, found my way into uh, Rodale, Rodale Institute back in 1975 and um, been there ever, ever since. Uh, so it's just been a rewarding opportunity for me to work for an organization that's allowed me to uh, follow my passion, follow my, my instincts and my lead. And, uh, and it's just been very rewarding. So it's not an exciting history. I didn't bop all over the countryside. I, I stayed in one place. I still live in Pennsylvania. We bought a, a small piece of land before we got married back in uh, uh, 1977. Uh, I still live on that land. We build our own house. We were kind of back to the landers, uh, my wife and I. Now my son has taken that uh, the the 70 acres that we have here, and he's built that into a 500 acre uh, uh, certified organic dairy operation. He works that full time, so that's his passion and what he does, and he's really grown the the business. But we get to sit here and and enjoy that, and uh, he's uh, he has four kids, so I got grandkids that are close to home here. I get to see them on a routine basis every day if I want to, and. Um, yeah, so I'm just, I'm lucky, still connected with Rodale, still working there, get the putts around here. Uh, my son lets me keep a couple tractors on this farm so I can play with those. Uh, he steals them from time to time and I open up the shed and it's like, wait, my tractor's gone. But that's, that's all good. So I, I've got, uh, I got, I got no complaints. So is that the same son that uh, tractor or truck pulled then? Or? Yeah, that's him. I only have one son. I have one daughter okay. and one son. They're both sort of uh, involved in organics in a way. My my daughter is a uh, health coach and uh, nutritionist, and my son is a, a farmer. And, uh, daughter, fortunate enough, they're around there, then too close at hand. Or yeah, she's about an hour away. Uh, I get to see her, uh, not quite as much. She's she's quite busy, her and her husband, but she does not have children, so uh, she's but she's she's busy with her business, and my son's busy with his, and. Life, life is good. They're, they're, uh, well, uh, they're healthy, doing well. The forestry studies, then, uh, what, what did you like about the forestry aspect or just? Well, to I've, be part, yeah, part I've always, I've always, I've always loved trees. I've got a wood lots on my farm here and I like to get into the woods and, uh, cut trees and, and look at management of, of, of wood lots. I've just always enjoyed the, uh, sort of the, the, the density of, of the forest, you know, it always felt, my wife explains it, I think, better than I do. She always says, she, it feels like when you walk into the woods, it feels like somebody put your arms around you and it's holding you. So uh, I, I understand what she means when she says that. I don't know if that makes sense to the listeners or not, but yeah, well, I, 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 I was, always enjoyed the forest. And I like, what I like about Pennsylvania here so much is we've got a lot of uh, interface between forest and farms and forest and fields so a lot of our farms uh, bump up against hillsides and forested land and whenever you have that interaction between uh forest right on the edge you get that edge effect and and life just seems to flourish and we get tremendous wildlife and birds and all sorts of things happen when you get close to the edge you know you get out in the middle of the field there's not quite as much diversity and i like diversity so i like that edge where you have lots of edges my farm's all about edges well, then, then uh, let's go to 1975 Rodale. I mean, yeah. I, want to get in, I want to get into the depth of Rodale, but I also want to hear the transition from the forestry to 1975 when you started Rodale and stuff like that. So. 
Well, being, being sort of that back to the lander mentality, I was always interested in agriculture from a slightly different slant. And the idea of uh, organic agriculture and farming in, in a slightly different way really made a lot of sense to me. And if you go back to uh, J.I. Rodale, and I, and I did not know J.I. Uh, Rodale, the founder of Rodale uh, Enterprises, passed away in 1971. So he was gone about four years before I started with the organization. But his wife was there, and she certainly kept his legacy alive. And Robert Rodale was was prominent on the scene. I got to spend uh, a lot of time with with Robert Rodale and, and the conversations that we'd have and, and talking about uh, organic agriculture and the idea that the reason that we're farming isn't to produce crops. I mean, it, it's not farmers tend to we, we tend to break things down into tasks. I got to manage the weeds in my cornfield. Yeah, but that's just that's just a task that you have to do. That's not really your goal. The ultimate goal, you know, J.I. said the ultimate goal of farmers is to make people healthy. People's health all starts with what farmers do. And that all starts with the way you manage the soil. So that's just really, that when, when I started talking about that, that just resonated with me and, and, and struck a chord that I couldn't let go of. The, the reason that we farm is to make people healthy. So then it, it sort of makes you step back and look at all of the tools that you're using in your farm operation and how do they help you get to the, that end goal? So, for example, uh, now we didn't have Roundup back then, uh, but uh, J.I. would have said, okay, does spraying Roundup help make people healthy? Yeah. You go, no, no, it kills weeds. Well, if, if the goal is to kill weeds, Roundup's a great tool. It's a great tool. But if the goal is to make people healthy, it's a really terrible tool. There, there is no way you can make people healthy with Roundup. If that was the case, then the more you'd spray, the healthier we'd get. And that's not the case. I mean, it'd be really, really easy if all of us humans could simply go to the supermarket or the restaurant and eat soil. That'd be a lot easier. Nobody, nobody would say, hey, give me that soil that's laced with uh, ag chemicals and, and salt-based fertilizer. That's really what I want. No, everybody would be saying, oh, give me some of that organic compost and give me some of that rich uh, Iowa and Nebraska soil. That's really what I, I want, some of that. Uh, that's what I want to eat. But we don't eat soil. So the conversation gets a lot trickier and we have to break it down into how the food was produced and where it was produced and how it was grown and how the soil was treated. And so I think that in that complicated conversation, uh, I got I got hooked and uh, I couldn't seem to let go of that concept that my goal as a farmer is to make people healthy and the tool that I'm going to use is the soil. So my goal is to make soil healthy. And as long as I farm in a way that's making the soil healthy, I'm going to achieve my ultimate goal at the other end by making people healthy. I'm not a doctor. I, I can't do that. But then you, you know, then you even get a little further into things and you talk to physicians and I've been fortunate uh, in my position as CEO at Rodale Institute to talk to hospital administrators and doctors and, and people that are on the front line of talking to people about their health. And I had a doctor say to me one time at a major hospital, he said, you know, our, our goal isn't to make people healthy. That's never been our goal at the hospital. Our goal is to make people function. Oh, that's really, that's kind of deep, actually. And if you look at what the USDA says about soil, they say healthy soil is soil that can function. That, that's just, that's a weak statement. I mean, function means that you and I, Lauren, can get up in the morning, 
eat some food and get through the day. That's functioning. And what he said, he literally said, my goal is to make sure that the patients that come into our hospital go out the door, can function and work so they can get health insurance so they can come back through that door every 40 days. They have to, that, that door has to spin every 40 days for that patient or I don't make money. The insurance company doesn't, isn't happy. So it's like you go out and work, get health insurance. That's what keeps the hospital going. What a terrible system that is. And unfortunately we've gotten ourselves as an agricultural uh, model in this country and around the world, I would say that what we're doing is we're spinning that revolving door and we're just keeping our soils functioning. And we really need to step back and say, how can we make them healthy so that they can provide all the, the, the great things that soils do for us in, in terms of providing health to, to humans and to the animals that we, that we support on that landscape. So I think that's, that's, that's really deep. It's exciting. It's much more than just planting corn and planting beans and or picking apples. It's, uh, it's much deeper than that. And that, that deep philosophical conversation is something that uh, in 1975, as a young man, just grabbed a hold of me and uh, wouldn't let go. Well, and I, I appreciate that you went there because I remember the year I stopped out there and you put me up in the mansion. And yeah. I don't know if it was by design, but there, the book was laying on the kitchen counter and anybody that knows me is I get up about two o'clock in the morning. I can't lay in bed anymore. So I get come downstairs there and I started reading and uh, read that book and, you know, the whole history of the Institute and all that there until you experience that and go through all that. It goes to that next level as just as you're talking and that. So I appreciate you going there tonight. Not, uh, which kind of brings me to the next question yesterday down at uh, Rodale, Iowa. Everybody was talking about a new crop. And then as I was getting ready for this, uh, here I found out that was a big part of your history in 1975, I believe. Amaranth? Amaranth, yeah. So what, what, what can you tell us about that other than it's related to water hemp and uh, Palmer Amaranth? <laughs> A distant relative, yeah. A much, uh, you know, there, there's there's so many uh, varieties of amaranth within that species. Uh, there's amaranth that you can that's um, you eat the vegetation, so you eat it like spinach. You know, you eat the leaves, and they're highly nutritious. There's amaranth that is all the wild stuff that you see around is black seeded, but there's white seeded amaranth, which is a great grain for. Uh, uh, containing uh, amino acids that no other grains uh, contain uh, for making people healthy. So what happened was back in the in the mid 70s, uh, Bob Rodell and, and many of his world travels sort of bumped into that crop amaranth, and he said there's got to be a way that we could uh, make amaranth a commercial a grain. How do we how do we do it? If it is so nutritious, if ancient cultures uh, grew it and uh, actually used it in many of their uh, religious ceremonies and they save it for celebrations. And it was a, a premier food crop in their, in their uh, repertoire of things they ate. How can we commercialize that and make it, uh, it's gonna take some breeding. Uh, a lot of the amaranth that we looked at had multiple uh, seed heads on, on one plant and it was 12 feet tall and had a stalk the size of a baseball bat. 
Well, that's not going to run through a combine very well. So how do we get its stature down, get it into a single head so that it looked more like uh, sorghum? How do we, how do we do that? How, how can breeding help us there? And so um, Bob sent, uh, literally sent people around the world to collect germplasm. And we had the largest germplasm collection of amaranth species in the, in the world. Uh, and then later on, he, um, Pennsylvania is not the greatest place to grow amaranth, a little too humid here in the East Coast. And so he found some growers out in Colorado. Uh, I think he donated the germplasm to Colorado State at the time. I don't know where it is now, if it even exists, but quite an interesting crop. And you, it kind of ebbs and flows. You're, you're hearing about it, as you mentioned, uh, just the other day, it's starting to come back in terms of its uh, its prominence, and people are getting interested in it all over again. You know, it flourished in the in the uh, mid '80s, and then uh, uh, sort of waned a little bit. You, you see it in health food stores, and it's still out there, but now it's it's getting a real resurgence in its uh, in its marketability. I know the, the first time I really seen it or heard of it being harvested as a crop was a friend of mine was a custom cutter mm -hmm. out, out west there and out in Colorado. He was harvesting amaranth in the middle yeah. of winter and it's like, huh. And then uh, if you ever make Iowa here sometime, we'll have to take you to Seed Savers in Decor, Iowa. They have got yeah. one big, I mean, so many different varieties there of amaranth and that it's just pretty and that. So, but uh I see we did have a first question pop in here. Uh, Deanna, in a biologically active soil, there is not enough chemical res or there's not chemical residue hanging around. Think bioremediation. In a non-functioning soil system, yes, there can be residual chemicals. Soils can be higher functioning in a no-till system using regenerative pr principles in a, than in a system using tillage control weeds. In organic systems, if we want healthy people, first we need biologically active soils first. Minimize disturbance is a goal. In regard to tillage and chemical, human and animal impact, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, of course. Uh, the soils have to be biologically active. That's absolutely true. If you go back about um, 4,000 years, uh, Hippocrates made a list of the things that a physician should know about their patient. I think there was, a, the list I saw had 11 things on it. Why 11, I don't know. But one of the items on that list, I mean, think of this, 4,000 years ago, what he said was a physician should know something about the soil where their patient's food comes from. So he understood that there was a link between biologically healthy active soils and a biologically healthy active human. He didn't understand what that connection was, but he did know that if the soil is poor quality, because he could see that if the person was eating food that was grown in poor quality soil, their health was impacted by that in a negative way. And if they could get food from uh, healthier soils, which means biologically active, then of course their health could improve. And you could see that uh, most of us today eat food from literally all over the world. Uh, you know, I, uh, I just had some wild caught salmon for dinner tonight that came from Norway. Uh, you know, in uh, Hippocrates time, you ate what was close by. You know, food traveled uh, a few miles at most, probably. 
And so you could find out more about where a person's food came from. But I would challenge any of your listeners here to this evening uh, to ask their doctor or when next time they go to their doctor, see if their doctor asks them anything about the soil where their food came from. First of all, if my physician asked me that, I would I would literally fall off the chair because it would shock the heck out of me. But uh, it just it just doesn't happen. They don't think about that. Um, I have a running dialogue with my doctor. Uh, he's a great guy, nice family doctor. But I told him one time, I said, I could learn your job in 30 days. Oh, he said it took whatever, 12 years or something. I said, it was a waste of time. I said, all you really know as a family physician, and I'm not saying physicians aren't brilliant because they are smart people and we need them. And so I'm not trying to dump on, on physicians, but what I said is, unfortunately, we've changed the, the relationship between patient and physician to where I come in, I give you some symptoms, you look at the list of symptoms, you look at a list of pharmaceuticals to treat those systems, and you pick out which drug you're going to give me, and you give me that drug, and you say, call me in, in a couple of days, see if it helped. If it didn't help, then there's another list of specialists that you send me to. That's all you do. You just look at those three lists, the list of symptoms, list of pharmaceuticals, isn't that what we do in agriculture? We look at soil, we look at weeds and we go, what's the list of problems we have? What's the list of, in, in conventional ag, what's the list of pharmaceuticals that I have to, in this case, ag chemicals to treat those symptoms? And if that doesn't work, who do I call to come in to try to identify a better way uh, to do that? It's the same pattern that we have across uh, every part of the aspect that impacts our human health from soil health right up through uh, human health. And I think we need to, we need to change that conversation. Uh, the, the writer who asked that question understands that, uh, you know, when you talk about ag chemicals, you're not talking about a biologically active soil. You're talking about using the soil as a media to hold the crop up, put the chemical in, grow the crop. Can we grow corn? Heck yeah, we can grow corn. Is there nutrition in that corn? No. Unfortunately, it's not. But to be to be fair to farmers everywhere, uh, we don't get paid for nutritional quality of corn or beans. We get paid for number two corn and how many tons can I produce on an acre? That's what we're rewarded for. And so we have to change that uh, incentive reward program uh, across the, the globe if we really want to have the kind of impact that that your listener is talking about. I think that opens the door for the question, how do we inflict that change and, you know, change the markets and stuff like that? I mean, I know several of us are working towards that. You know, I, I think Rodale's working on some pretty interesting things. You care to elaborate on some of that? Yeah, well, I think I, I think the core to this whole conversation is the kind of thing that we're doing right here with this podcast, which is exchanging information and getting people to begin to think differently uh, and ask the right questions. You're asking questions. Uh, consumers have to start asking questions. And we're starting to see more and more of that happening across the uh, uh, across the globe as consumers are getting better educated. You know, the internet is a fascinating tool. Uh, we're using it here uh, today for this, this podcast, but uh, consumers can go with their cell phone in the supermarket directly to uh, a, a product label. Uh, they can hit the QR code. They can get all kinds of information. There's a lot of information out there and people have to start asking the question, how was my food produced? Where was it produced? Why, why is this product taste different or look different or, uh, or seem to respond differently uh, to my, uh, my condition. Um, we had a woman that 
bought some, we, we have a small CSA program at, uh, at Rodale Institute. We don't have to go into that in great detail, but uh, her son had autism. And it's, it's, it's really a rewarding story. And those are the kinds of stories that sort of keep you in agriculture when you know you touch people directly. Um, she went to uh, her physician because her son, with, who was autistic, as he was maturing and getting older, I believe it was eight or nine, uh, something in that area, um, he was starting to get more and more withdrawn, less interactive with the family, and was starting to act out violently. Uh, to the point, she said, where her and her husband had to sleep in shifts because they were afraid that he might get up in the middle of the night and hurt the other children in their household. And her physician's response was, I think we need to institutionalize him uh, so he doesn't hurt himself or someone else. That didn't really sit well with her and her husband. They said, you know, we, we love him. It's not his fault that he has autism. And of course, we can't cure autism with, with food and diet. But she said, um, do you think the food he's eating has anything to do with it? And the physician said, no, that's got nothing to do with it. He said, she said, I think we need to change his diet. And if you're not interested, I think we'll change doctors first. So she changed doctors, found a doctor that said, of course, the first thing you need to do is get the chemicals out of his system, get him on an organic diet. And again, we're not going to cure autism, but within six weeks, she said he started to do uh, go back to the way he was. He was interactive, still, still not uh, verbal, didn't speak. And, you know, again, we're not going to cure autism but turned into a happy, loving child. Uh, they went back to sleeping through the night. They, they keep him in the home and everything's really turned around for that family. Uh, at the same time, she said, I lost 50 pounds and my husband lost 60 because we're eating a, a, a better diet and, and things are going uh, well. So we know we can impact people with the way food is produced and you see it in some of those extreme cases. Uh, and you see many, uh, many, uh, Cancer folks say, uh, you know, institutions say, get on an organic diet. It's like, why do we wait till we have cancer to get the chemicals out of our food system? And that's where that thought process is starting to change. People are starting to say, hey, I, I understand that. Why would I wait? Let's get the, the, the chemicals out of our food system. And organic is just growing so rapidly and, and running off supermarket shelves. Uh, for that reason. And, and it's just going to keep growing and growing. And the folks that are tuning into the podcast here, the folks at Rodale, you yourself, Lauren, I mean, we're all kind of on the on the cutting edge. Uh, Rick Clark, of course, uh, on the cutting edge of, of leading that charge as people say, okay, if we want to do that, how do we do it? How can we find a, a, a different path forward? Uh, e you know, even the chemical companies know that uh, if you think we're going to be spraying Roundup in 500 years, uh, I asked the chemical company that, do you think we'll be spraying this in 500 years? They all laughed. Literally, they didn't ask the question, they just laughed. I said, okay, 100 years. Uh, some of them chuckled. Uh, some said, maybe. Uh, 50 years, they all said, I hope so because they're making money at it. But they know that that's not the, that's not the future. That's this stopgap from where we were uh, to where we're going to be uh, in, in, in a more organic and regenerative model. And I, I think we're all moving in that direction. We see the need for soil health. Uh, it doesn't matter uh, whether you talk to agronomists or plant breeders, they all say soil health is a limiting factor in our ability to produce more food, more nutritious food, higher quality food. Uh, and that's impacting uh, our climate, it's impacting our personal health, and we need to start to turn that around. And I, I think we're seeing that. Uh, well, obviously, uh, this conversation didn't take place in 1975, uh, but here we are almost 50 years later, 
and that conversation is in the forefront of of every meeting you go to. You don't go to a meeting today with ag around agriculture that we don't talk about soil health and the concepts around regenerative agriculture as we work out a definition for what that means. One hundred percent agree, and I mean, you know, in our personal situation, I think you've met my son Roland before, and. Uh, you know, the biggest thing we learned with him, the same as the autism and stuff like that, the sugars and all that oh, is yeah. a big, that's a big part, you know, and me, me personally, just learning how to eat again and eat right has been the biggest change for me in that. So no, and, and the biggest thing I see anymore is we've got to have the confidence to have these conversations. So yeah. many people, the minute you start going that direction, they start getting defensive. It stops. Right. And, you know, that, that, that's, that's been the hard part for me the last couple of years here, you know, especially, you know, I, I, I've got to be very careful anymore. So I don't take a hard stand on a few things just because I could be talking about my son-in-law. I could be talking about my daughter, you know, all sure, that, of course, of uh, course. you know, well, that, that crossing them lines is a, a big hurdle. To, to be fair, uh, Lauren, I mean, I've, again been very fortunate and blessed to be able to travel around the world and and meet people of meet farmers and 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 be out on farms in many many countries i've never met, never met a farmer yet that got up in the morning and said my goal is to make people unhealthy or to ruin the health of mice nobody does that unfortunately we're doing that because the marketplace has demanded it in many ways uh, but farmers don't want to do that that's not our goal and so i think we're all we're all in the same, uh, we're all reading from the same book. We, um, we approach it differently. We're coming at it differently, but it's not, uh, it's not an us or them. Yeah, we're all in it together trying to figure out a path forward. And uh, again, organizations like Rodale Institute are, are leading the charge and, and pointing a path to a, a different future. Uh, we think a bright future and uh, the marketplace is, is showing that that's worthy of the effort. Well, a little more on the history of Rodale then. That actually started as a publishing company, if I remember right. Well, it, yeah. Uh, what, yeah. What happened was um, J.I. Rodale was a, uh, an entrepreneur and he had, uh, he had multiple enterprises. The, the most profitable one was an electrical switchgear business that was based out of Brooklyn, uh, New York. And so him and his brother uh, had a factory. They made electrical switchgears and, and that's how they made money. That was back in the uh, in 1930s. If you leading up to World War II, Jerry Rodale, his real name wasn't Rodale. It was Cohen. Uh, doing business with a Jewish last name in New York City was challenging. And so a little insight into how J.I. Rodale thought, uh, he said, well, if your name is a problem, just change your name. So Rodale is actually a made up name. I think the first two letters, if I understand correctly, uh, were the R.O. was for his mother's name, which was Rose. And the Dale is like Hill and Dale, uh, you know, valleys, you know, hills and valleys. So Hill and Dale. And he made up the name Rodale. Suddenly business was booming and he did all right. Now, again, looking back, his, his, his family came from Poland. So you don't have to look back too far in history to see what was happening to the Jewish population in Poland leading up to World War II. And J.I.'s thought was, he said, well, you know, if it, if it can happen in Poland and Germany, uh, 
very sophisticated countries, it could happen in the United States too. And if you look back into the late 1930s, uh, even in Madison Square Garden, they had large Nazi rallies and marches and uh, campaigns. And he thought, okay, uh, if I buy a farm, I've got the wherewithal to do that. I have the financial resources. If I buy a farm, I can grow my own food. His idea, it was almost like the uh, original Green Acres, that old TV show. You know, he was going to move his family for the summer out to the farm in Pennsylvania, grow these uh, foods and vegetables, freeze them, dry them, can them, whatever he needed to do, haul it back to the city, stuff it in his apartment, and he could eat. You know, they couldn't starve him out. He would have food. Around the same time, he had attended a, a, a seminar and a few, uh, a lecture series. If you go back to the 20s, 30s, even into the early 40s, uh, magazines and lectures were the way you got information. We didn't have the internet. So he went to hear a lecture that talked about food and how food impacts your health. And so that you are what you eat sort of mentality uh, caught hold of him. So he said, okay, I am what I eat. I, if I need food, I'm going to buy a farm. I'm going to grow healthy food. He bought a farm. He's a city person. Uh, most of the pictures you see of him, uh, you see him wearing a, a a suit and tie. So even when he's out in the farm, he, he was wearing a coat and tie. So he didn't know a thing about agriculture. What do you do? You bring in experts to help you with that, that conversation about how do I farm? And of course, the experts talked about poisons to kill weeds, poisons to manage uh, diseases, and, and poisons to kill insects. And so he asked this fundamentally simple question. He said, how do poisons, how, how does the soil transition these poisons into healthy food because i'm going to eat this stuff and they said well it doesn't you know you say what's the alchemy that takes place in the soil that it allows me to take salt and poison and turn it into healthy food well that's not the case that's not what happens and so he said well then why would i use those tools and boom, here comes organic agriculture so he started a magazine uh, again, with some of the resources that he had, ran that publishing business for about 20 years as a money, uh, kind of as a hobby. It lost money every year for the first 20 years of its life uh, and then began to flourish and turned into Rodale Publishing. Uh, they took some of the proceeds from that. Bob Rodale said, I want to create a, a nonprofit institution to carry this message further, farther, faster than I can do uh, on my own. I mean, add resources, but they were they were limited and he said we need more resources and open it up to the to the public so that it's really publicly supported and that's how the institute got started the publishing business was sold about six years ago to uh, another publishing firm hearst publishing bought it and uh, they had a book division a magazine division he created organic gardening and farming magazine which he then broke out into organic gardening and a new farm magazine and then he started prevention because he said well this impacts health how do we prevent disease instead of treating disease so he had prevention magazine and then got into uh, all sorts of alternative uh, health magazines the men's health women's health magazines the very successful publications that uh, really put rodale and the name rodale in the in the in the the space that we that we understand it at Okay, we have another question here. Come yeah, I, in. I, I, I saw how some you, pop up. I couldn't read it though. Yes. How do you suggest farmers, large and small, fight back against our persuasive push to force chemical agriculture upon us? Our fruit farm uses a lot of regenerative techniques, but only because it's the right thing to do, not because it's more profitable. Mm -hmm. John Warmerdam. Okay. 
Yeah, I mean, there's obviously there's challenges. If it was easy, it would have been done already. Uh, we know that the chemical companies are going to push back. They push back not just on individual farmers. They push back through uh, the work that we do at universities. You know, they support and subsidize a lot of the work that goes on at universities as we uh, try to continue to facilitate a, a, a broken system. It's it's understandable. That's how they make their money. Uh, and so we understand that. And, you know, and, and farmers, again, aren't trying to do something wrong. Uh, we, we all try to make our jobs and our lives a little bit easier if we can. Uh, we're organic farmers here at home. And, and my son just said the other day, it's uh, it's easy to see how people like using Roundup in soybeans. You know, keeping organic soybeans clean is not always not always easy. And so maybe we're a little envious of how clean some of their fields look. Uh, it's just a constant battle. We just have to keep we have to keep doing as as the, the listener is saying, we've got to do what's right. We have to keep doing what we know is right uh, and, and keep working in that direction, knowing that the future is on our side. Uh, everybody wants their children to be healthy. Everybody wants themselves to be healthy. We all want a healthy planet. Uh, we all have to live here. Uh, we have different ideas about how to go about that. I certainly understand that, but I think we all can agree that over time, dumping millions of tons of pesticides on the landscape year after year after year is probably uh, not a uh, a plan for a, a regenerative future. I would agree with that one too. Uh, back to Rodale now. <coughs> You've got Rodale, Iowa, Rodale, I believe in Georgia, California, where else all? I think, did I read now that you're in nine states and uh, foreign countries now even? Yeah, yeah, we, um, <clears throat> excuse me for coughing. We recognized uh, years ago that uh, we're doing some amazing work at Rodale Institute. And one of our core uh, uh, themes at, at the Institute is we say that our, our farm, and now we say our farms with an S, our farms are a destination for inspiration. We know that the first step in, in getting change to happen is to inspire people to look at the resources they have differently. But not everybody can come to our main campus in eastern Pennsylvania. And so we decided to branch out across the country to find uh, supporters who, who would uh, help us get started in, in different regions. So yes, we have a research facility in Iowa, uh, in Marion, Iowa. We have one uh, just south of Atlanta, Georgia in Chattahoochee Hills region of uh, Georgia. We have one in uh, California and we have one in Washington state. We have one in the Pocono region of Pennsylvania, which is a high mountain plateau. So even though it's only an hour from our main campus, uh, it's like going to Siberia. Uh, it, it really changes rapidly there. So it's a whole, di whole different uh, farming uh, system that we work on there. So trying to showcase the farmers that the systems that we work, it's not, the story isn't about Rodale Institute, it's about the soil and soil health. And if you can do it in Eastern Pennsylvania, you can make it work in Iowa. If it works in Iowa, it's gonna work in Georgia. It, it's, it's gonna be a different system. There are different soils, different climates, different insect interactions, uh, different uh, uh, biodiversities. We understand that. Uh, we have a facility in Italy. 
Uh, that's one of our that's our international one right now, and we're working on one in uh, getting something started in Austria, uh, and possibly Argentina as well as we as we branch out around the world, uh, trying to um, keep the message alive, trying to inspire farmers to look at the resources they have. We all have resources. We have resources of time and money, land, seed, machinery, and so what we're saying is if if we present this as a, a sort of a, a puzzle that hasn't been defined yet. And you asked the farmer, you said, if I gave you all of these resources, what's the best thing you could do with those to make people healthy, to feed the world? And you said, grow number two corn for ethanol. I think we need to rethink that. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying to disparage anybody that does that. I'm just saying, let's, let's think about the model. How do we put these resources to work to achieve a, a greater goal? Uh, knowing, knowing that we all have to survive financially, of course, we all got to pay the bills and, and make the ship float. Because if we don't, someone else will be using those resources, not us, not you or not me. Okay, we got questions coming in pretty good now. Uh, what collaborations has Rodale been able to recent, build recently? I think you were kind of hitting on some of them. Well, I, that's, that's really one of the beauties of Rodale Institute. Everything we do, we do in partnership. Uh, we recognized uh, decades ago that if we're going to have the, the monumental impact that the people on the planet deserve, we're going to have to have partnerships and relationships with other organizations and other individuals. So we work with uh, every food company you can think of. We work with every land grant university. We work with the USDA. Uh, we've got uh, projects and people embedded everywhere. I mean, you just, you have to have partnerships. Uh, in Iowa, we're partnering with, with Iowa State. I mean, you have to. How can you uh, hope to, and, and it'd be foolish to duplicate the amazing resources that Iowa State has. So the goal there, if you think about it, it we're not going to change Iowa State's to, to be 100% an organic institution. We know that. But if we can just take all the resources that we're entrusted with and bump Iowa State, bump Texas A&M, bump Georgia Tech, bump Penn State, bump Cornell University, bump Rutgers, just bump them all just a little bit to start playing around a little bit with some organic and regenerative organic technologies. We can multiply the resources that we have a uh, hundred times over. Uh, they just have so much more capacity than we have. And, and that's really been the exciting thing uh, in, at Rodeo Institute is working with partnerships and building relationships with all these organizations, food companies from, uh, from Nestle on down to the smallest, uh, all want to, uh, to uh, produce products that consumers want, uh, to produce products that make people healthy. Nobody wants to be in court uh, with a product that made somebody sick. That's no, nobody's goal in the food industry. Uh, how do we do that? Uh, you talked about changing your own personal diet, Lauren. How do, we, how do we get food companies to understand what it is you need, what it is you desire, and, and get that for, for you? I mean, most of us don't eat, even those of us who farm, we don't eat off of our own farms. Uh, we eat uh, what everybody else eats. So how do we get people to, to begin to reshape our food system? It's, it's a big challenge, but it's, it's really exciting. Next question to be, how do you facilitate the information flow between the various Rodale sites? That's from Lynn Yeoman. Well, uh, probably not as good as we should. Uh, we, we try to uh, maintain really 
uh, hard lines of communication between all of our facilities. Uh, even though we uh, have multiple facilities, we are one Rodale Institute. Uh, so those folks get to, uh, we just had a field day in July. I think almost all of our teams were represented at our field day at the main campus. So we bring people together. We get our staff from uh, the main campus to, to go out to our regional resource facilities uh, frequently. Uh, we only have one uh, HR department. We only have one uh, accounting department. We only have one communications team. Uh, we only have one graphic design team. They're all housed at our main campus, but they facilitate the work at all of our campuses. So when you, regardless of which campus you go to, it has the look and feel of Rodale Institute. Uh, uh, if you look at our website, it's, it's all the same. It all feels the same. So we try really hard to have strong communication. Do, uh, do folks out in the uh, remote locations sometimes feel uh, not as tightly connected as we'd like them to? Probably. Uh, it's something that we work on all the time. Yeah, we're, we're down in uh, Tennessee and Missouri too. I should have mentioned that. We've got some livestock work we're doing down there with Dr. Sayed. So yeah, it's, it's a constant process, like like any relationship, uh, communication is key and it's it's constant work. Well, I, I, I can help you testify to that. I mean, I'm, I've been involved with Rodale, Iowa since its inception almost. And, uh, you know, to see the progress over the years and I've seen the ups and downs through it all. And it takes time. But, it, you know, yesterday was a proud moment, I would say. And yes, you know, head of HR was there. I remember meeting her and Rick Carr was there, your farm manager. And uh yeah, you know, it's great to see the interact interaction between the various sites and that. So, Deanna has another question: What would happen if fifty percent of the no-till conventional farmers switch to organic tillage techniques tomorrow? Well, it depends what they mean by uh, conventional organic tillage techniques. You know, I think we're we're moving rapidly away from uh, constant tillage. Is is some tillage necessary in organic systems? Yeah, unfortunately right now it is. Is, I mean, it, it, there's no free lunch anywhere. Uh, no matter what system you use, there's, there's pluses and minuses. Uh, we, we would say that a infrequent and timely tillage activity in a diverse crop rotation it's easier on the system. It's easier on the biology. It's easier on the system than constant applications of chemicals. Uh, all that, all that's doing is it's keeping the soil physically from moving from erosion from tillage that it's doing, but it's not building the health of the soil. Uh, we're depleting the the carbon out of the soil. Uh, there's even in no-till systems. There's nothing that we're doing to. Uh, uh, build soil. You even talk to Rattan Lal at Ohio State. He says, you know, in conventional no-till chemical-based systems, we are not improving the, the, the uh, carbon uh, component of the soil because we're not doing anything to improve the carbon content of the soil. We have to get into a much deeper, uh, much more diverse crop rotations that includes cover crops, that includes small grains and, and diversity of, of crops on, in a grain farm. In, uh, in perennial systems, it's much easier where we have you know, permanent crops like apples, or we, we talked a little bit about orange groves. Yeah, yeah, that's a little bit easier. Then how do we begin to manage the orchard floor so that we can build up biodiversity without using uh, chemicals? Uh, we're not suggesting that uh, what we do is go out and just plow up the whole state of Iowa and watch it wash down the, the, the river. I mean, that's just, 
that's that's ridiculous. We're not going to do that. Organic doesn't say we should do that. Uh, I would say they're organic farmers even with some tillage, uh, are improving the health of the soil, they're building soil health, they're building carbon, improving the carbon uh, in their soil, because it's much more diverse. It's not simply saying, we're going to till the soil instead of spray chemicals. It's not a one-to-one -one substitution. Uh, we need a much more robust plan for improving soil health. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd say that's kind of why I'm down the path I'm down right now, trying to help build the tools that are going to help us cross them bridges and stuff like that. I mean, you can't change overnight. You know, it's it's got to be, there's tools that are getting built right now. You know, we showcased some yesterday in Iowa there and, uh, you know, it, it's them key steps and that, that eventually will get us the roller crimper, but I want to keep asking the questions here while we're at it. But uh, Jeff, what are your thoughts on policy as a tool to help achieve food quality over quantity? Oh, I think that's a that, that's a fantastic question. Uh, policy is key to everything that we do. We're really excited to see uh, Congress right now. I mean, this isn't a Democratic issue or a Republican issue. This is just a, a people issue. And I, I don't care what party you belong to. Everybody wants their children to be healthy and their grandchildren. And uh, who wouldn't want that? And so it, it, it has nothing to do with that. It's it's not a. Uh, uh, a liberal hippie issue. It's it, it, you know it's it's about economics. We're we're seeing that that farmers that are moving into organic systems are more economically viable. Uh, they have a stronger, more uh, a predictable marketplace to operate from, and those are all. Those, those are, are good conservative values that, that we bring to, the, bring to the table. So we're really excited to see politicians across the spectrum beginning to look at this concept of soil health. Everybody in Washington, D.C. comes from some state, and that state wants to protect and improve the health of their soils. Uh, and, and these kinds of models that we're talking about here with organic and regenerative organic systems uh, will do that. Uh, it takes some time, and of course, it takes more research and it takes uh, uh, imaginative thinking, but we, we can improve the health of our soils. We don't have to continue to degrade our soils for short-term economic gain and long-term uh, tragedy down the road. We can't kick that can down the road for future generations uh, forever. It's just, it's, that bill's gonna be paid and uh, people are starting to see that. So policy has a huge uh, role to play. Uh, we saw here in, in Pennsylvania, for example, uh, in 2017, uh, then uh, Governor Wolf, uh, working with, he was a Democrat, but working with a Republican House and Republican Senate, created the first state farm bill that we know of in, in the nation, where he created a six-step uh, uh, policy plan to improve agriculture across the state. And one of the pillars in that plan was transition to organic. Well, as soon as he did that, as soon as policy became uh, carved in stone and the word organic was in there, we saw the organic um, the community um, rally around that. We saw conventional farmers who said, hey, is there, is there, is there a place for me now to move in that direction, uh, step forward? And I think we jumped uh, like 400 uh, organic farmers overnight. Uh, we grew because people said, hey, now, now it's easier for me to get in. It's more acceptable. And there's policy that supports that. How do we replicate that across the, uh, across the country? One of the things that the governor did in that plan was he created some funds for um, uh, consultants. 
So, you know, if you act, if you're asking a farmer to change from what they're doing to something else, uh, where other people are going to benefit, you got to support that change in a way with consultants, you got to bring information and knowledge to that farmer to help them make you make that transition you can't expect people to do that on their own with their own financial resources and take that risk so how does policy begin to hold the hand of farmers as we want to move them in a specific direction to do that. Uh, we, we can't do it without policy. Rodale Institute works in DC. We work within states. Uh, one of the things that we did was we created the Organic Farmers Association uh, so that we have a strong voice in policy in DC. It's the voice of farmers uh, for farmers in Washington. It's not the voice of Rodale Institute. It's a separate nonprofit that, that we created to, to carry that policy work forward. So I'm, I'm really glad somebody asked that question. We, we need people involved with their policymakers, helping to guide them uh, as they learn new, learn new things. Uh, most policymakers aren't farmers. Uh, some are, or some have an agricultural background, not all of them. And, uh, and yet they're voting on these things and they're, and they're creating legislation and policies that either support us through the farm bill or don't. And we got to figure out how to do that. And that, that tied in perfectly with Michael Adsit's question, you know, about the farm bill and that. And uh, Wendy, if you got more questions, jump on there. If you need to be, we'll get you on as a panelist here. If you want, raise your hand. Uh, Rachel can get you on there because I know you're heavily invested in that. So with that, uh, we talked a little about the equipment, but uh, the roller crimper now, I mean, what was the inspiration? Where where did you first think of it or see it? Uh, you know, I've heard Brazil and Argentina had some of the early renditions, but how did you come upon your version? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> for me, it happened sort of by accident. You know, I'm a I'm a student of observation. I was a farm manager at Rodale Institute at the time at our main campus there in in. Uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. And we had a research scientist that was uh, doing some work with cover crops and, and corn. And we had a, a field, it was about a three acre field of research plots. I think there was like 190 different plots in that field, you know, as, you know how science looks in these small plot research. Uh, but a big chunk of the field was planted into hairy vetch. And both of the ends of the fields were planted into hairy vetch. And when we no-tilled corn into these cover crops, our, some of them had tillage. There was a whole bunch of things happening in there. But in order to turn the tractor around, it was just easier for me to drive the planter through this hairy vetch at the end of the field, uh, plant into the end of the field, pick it up, turn around and go back into the research plot. So the end of the field had nothing to do with research. But by driving over it and making all my turns, because to plant all those research plots, you were just driving the snot out of the end of the field, uh, which happens in research a lot. Um, I'm sitting in my office one day and one of my neighbors comes into my office and he said, hey, Jeff, he said, I, I thought you guys were organic. I said, we are. Of course we are. He goes, huh, well, somebody sprayed herbicide on your field up there. I don't think so. Oh, yeah. He said, you can see it. So we drove up to the field and here we had this at the ends of the, I couldn't tell you what happened in the other 192 plots. You know, I'm sure something that they wrote a research paper on. I don't know what it was, but the ends of the field where that hairy vetch was, where it was driven down, it was a mat of cardboard and the corn was coming up out of that mat of cardboard where I pulled the planter through just to make sure I had planted through the plots, picked it up and turned it. And we both stood there and looked at it. And I said, I didn't spray anything there. He goes, well, that, that crop is dead. It's a nice mat. That's a nice mulch. And 
I said, that's beautiful. How do we do that again? If I, if I told the farmer to just drive all over their field endlessly, the people would think you're crazy. And so I started experimenting with different rollers. Is there, is there a tool that we could use to smash this stuff down? How do we do that? And, and you know, it's, it's not rocket science. It's, it's, it's simple biology. We know in, in a vegetable garden, that's the other place that I started looking at, you know, in a vegetable garden, how do we stop annual weeds from growing? We put mulch on it. Uh, I don't care if it's straw, grass clippings, newspaper, carpet squares, cardboard, put whatever you want down on the ground. Annual weeds aren't going to grow through that. It's like, ah, even, even Jeff Moyer was smart enough to see that. But if I went out and I told you to mulch a thousand acres of corn, people would think you're an idiot. I mean, it's just never going to happen. So how do we, how, how do we grow that mulch right in the field? So then I'm seeing this this driven down stuff. And I said, well, if there's a way that we can terminate cover crops mechanically without using chemicals, can we grow them right in place, create the mulch in the field? And then, you know, organic agriculture, regenerative organic agriculture is not anti-technology. I mean, we want to use the latest and greatest. We just don't want to use technology that makes people sick. You know, we're not going to use Roundup. That's technology, of course, but it doesn't make people healthy. Uh, do satellite guided tractors make people sick? No. Okay, we're going to use them. Do robotics make people sick? Not that I know of. We're going to use it. Does uh, no-till planter technology make people sick? No, that's just good biologically sound farming. So we're going to use all that technology to get our seeds in the ground. And so the first, first time I talked to John Deere, I said I was having trouble getting the planter through the field. And they said, well, you know, we can plant through almost anything. And with, with technology, you know, I had my cell phone. I took my picture of the cover crop that we're rolling and trying to plant into. And you could hear the whole engineering department laughing as he was passing this photo around. They're going, you guys are crazy. That's not just, you know, a little bit of corn residue or soybean residue. You're talking about... Uh, you know, 12,000 pounds of biomass per acre out there. Uh, how do we get through that? Well, that's just the kind of question that ag engineers get up every morning trying to solve. I mean, they love that. So we start working in partnership with people, ag engineers to say, okay, how do we design equipment that'll get through that? If that's the goal, how do we do that? And so by working in, in partnership, we, we created this, the roller crimper, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not an ag engineer by any stretch of the imagination. And I worked with John Brubaker, uh, my Mennonite neighbor at, at the Institute there, who's a fantastic fabricator to build the prototype. And we were talking about how we wanted to build something to put on the front of the tractor to roll down this cover crop. And he said, well, you know, we could do that. Um, first, we were thinking about a roller. If you look at the rollers that, that they have in Brazil, they're really designed for, for knocking down brush and bushes. And they're, they're quite large and they have blades on them that are meant to crack and crush and, and chop up brush. So they're sharp, big, heavy blades that are mounted straight. Well, if you mount a roller, if you mount blades on a roller in a straight line from one end to the other, and you put it on the front of the tractor, it, it's going to bounce because it's like blade in the air, blade on the ground, blade in the air, and the thing, the thing chatters. Uh, you're going to feel that through the steering mechanism of almost any tractor. Uh, not quite so much on the back, but on the front. And what, what we wanted to do was have the cover crop roller be the first thing that touches the cover crop, not the wheels of the tractor. Tractor wheels can be a good uh, roller crimper, uh, depending on moisture conditions. If you think about it, what we're doing is we're using the soil as an anvil, 
and we're pinching that cover crop between that anvil and the blade. If the soil is very moist, it just sort of, if the tractor tire touches it, it just sort of pushes it into a little depression. It doesn't really crimp it, it just kind of pushes it down. And then after you drive through two days later, all those tire tracks stand back up because it wasn't really a good crimping thing. So we wanted to put that crimper on the front. We didn't want it to chatter. So again, thinking observationally, how do we do that? Well, if you, I don't know if uh, maybe some of your listeners have uh, seen or heard of a um, New Holland a, a, a pasta roller, I was going to say. A pot, when you're cutting pasta, it's a rolling pin with blades on it, but they're spiraled so that when you roll it across the cutting board, it doesn't bounce. It just rolls nice and smooth across there. Because, But that spiral is really a screw. If you're if you mount that screw on the front of a tractor, we farm on hills in Pennsylvania. If you're screwing the front of the tractor uphill, that's probably a benefit. But if you're trying to screw, if you're screwing it downhill, it's just going to pull the front. You can't steer it. So we wanted to figure out how do we how do we create something that's kind of neutral. And I literally was leaning on a New Holland uh, haybine uh, while we were talking, and uh, John Brubaker said, "Why don't we make it like that?" And I said, "Like what?" And he said, like that. And he pointed to the rollers, the crimping rollers on a New Holland haybine. Think about it. They gather it, they gather that material from the edges, pull it in, run it through the rollers, crimps it, puts it out the back. Brilliant. I mean, I didn't invent that. Uh, you know, we just sort of put these pieces together and said, how do we package this in a way that works? When we decided on how big to make the roller crimper, I mean, um, I, I mentioned uh, John uh, is a steel wheel Mennonite farmer. Uh, they ride a lot of bicycles. So we literally had all these bicycle parts laying there. We kept holding wheels up in front of the, the tractor till we found a wheel that looked like the right size. If we said the roller was going to be this big, people would say, well, uh, you know, six inches in diameter. They go, well, that's like a toy. You're going to bend that or break it. If it was four foot in diameter, they're going, oh my goodness, what's Jeff Moyer thinking of? That's going to be look like a monster, like a steamroller coming through the field. And so we, we held a wheel there and said, ah, it looks like uh, 26 inches, looks like a good size for in front of a tractor. And we went to the, uh, the salvage yard. They had a piece of 16 inch well casing. Perfect. We had, uh, they had some four inch blades, just a stock laying there. It was already cut into four inch ribbons. It was three eighths of an inch thick. Perfect. So we bought those, welded those on. So the, the thing is two foot in diameter and we designed it. We didn't know how much it should weigh, so we welded it up solid so we could fill it with water and said, or oil or beet juice or whatever you want to put in it uh, to manage the weight so we could make it heavier or lighter. Uh, we always fill ours completely full of water. The weight, the added weight helps. The front of the tractor has no problem lifting up the weight of a roller. It's designed for a front end loader or something, so that it just works. It works fine. And then we, we put it out there. Um, when we first, when I built the first one, my uh, then CEO at the time, kind of said, oh, ooh, ooh, maybe we could patent this. I know nothing about patent law or anything. So the, um, the corporate attorney got a patent attorney on the phone in Washington, DC. And about two minutes into the conversation, he asked a question. He said, if an organic farmer wants to build one of these roller crimpers, are you going to sue them? And you, you literally could see the bubble forming, that cartoon bubble out of our CEO's mind that said, Wall Street Journal says Rodale Institute sues organic farmers. 
No, he said, we would never sue an organic farmer. He said, then you don't want a patent. What you want to do is make the information public so that everybody can build it and everybody can use it. Uh, and you're just going to spend your time in court trying to defend it anyway. Uh, what's the point? for a nonprofit. So that's what we did. We immediately put it out online. We made the plans available. Anybody can build them. They're still on our website. You can still download them. Uh, you can still build it in any size, shape or form that you want and, and get out there and start rolling cover crops. And it's just been amazing to see how people have taken that technology, ran with it, uh, rolled with it literally. And uh, it works because it's based on biology, it works anywhere. It'll work with any crop. It'll work with vegetables. It'll work with tree crops and tree fruits. You just have to think about what it is you're trying to accomplish and adjust the uh, the cover crops. So, um, you know, what, what, what cover crop works in Pennsylvania may not work in Iowa. And the timing is going to be different, of course. That's why we need to do research on a, on a whole broad scale of things. But we've got people in Saskatchewan rolling it up north. Norway is about as far north. Uh, first, when I went there, they said it won't work in Norway. Uh, and now it now they're doing it. Uh, Germany, I've seen it in Australia. Uh, been, they've been down there watching them roll, uh, rolling in Argentina, just about everywhere. I had to chuckle there when you said nobody's crazy enough to drive a tractor track on track. <laughs> I know a guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that, that was kind of how we figured out how to make it work here in Iowa. Yeah. You know, tra track tractor going track on track. Okay. And uh, you start seeing, you know, the same observations you had. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when we figured out we could roll clovers and legumes in between standing corn and that and, you know, start building from there and that. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's some simple observations that help make things happen. One other thing I was reading there, lysimeters, did you help with them or was that just part of the trial system or? No, uh, yeah, that was a, that was another, probably not as a uh, relevant claim to fame that I had in my ag engineering, but we wanted to uh, take some uh, water samples from underneath some of our research plots. And we looked at zero tension lysimeters. We looked at sand lysimeters. We looked at a lot of different lysimeters and none of them really seemed to uh, enable us to manage the lateral flow of water in our soils. And I said, what we really need is an intact soil core lysimeter. And the, the key to the lysimeter wasn't so much the lysimeter itself, it was the installation device. I said, what we need to do is we need to be able to insert this cylinder without, what people were doing was they were excavating <clears throat> the soil, packing it into a cylinder and trying to simulate what was there originally. Well, anybody that's dug a ditch, excuse me, or, uh, you know, a trench or a basement knows you can't put the soil back the way it came out and have it function exactly the way it did uh, in its original state. So I said, well, what if we took a, uh, a heavy steel, steel wall cylinder? In this case, we used a, a 30 inch diameter well casing. And if you've ever tried to like cut angel food cake, if you take a dull knife and you try to cut it, it just kind of like crushes the whole thing. But if you take a really sharp knife and you hit it hard and fast, it just cleaves right through it. So I said, that's what we want to do. We want to insert this cylinder into the soil intact with three to four hits with a hammer. Again, I talked with my neighbor, John Brubaker, and he said, his eyes lit up. He said, 
you're talking about a big hammer. I said, oh yeah, this is a big hammer. So we created a tower with a uh, one ton hammer where we could raise that hammer 10 feet in the air and let it free fall onto the cylinder. So it's got a cable lift system. We used a, uh, uh, a cable pulley out of an old uh, D8 Caterpillar and ran that, that weight up to the top of the cylinder and we dropped it on there. And in three smacks, we had that thing a meter deep in the flush with the soil. Then what we could do was we just took a, uh, a track loader. Uh, we hooked a chain to it. We had punched two holes in the cylinder and just snapped it. So it's just like taking a soil core that you would do with your foot. You know, if when you stand up with your foot, you push hard and fast, it just slides right in. You pull the core up, you got a core. We snapped it off, lifted it out, welded a bottom on with a container, uh, a cup to catch the liquid. And then next to that, we excavated and put our carboy. So where the carboy is, it, the soil doesn't function completely right. But inside that lysimeter, the reason we chose, chose 30 inches, we plant our most of our grain crops on 30 inch row spacings. And that allows any crop inside that cylinder to have basically the same amount of soil to forage for, for resources and water as it would outside the cylinder. And um, the USDA now uses that as their uh, lysimeter model as well. And they've got them all over the world. Uh, so that's kind of a, a, a fun scientific tool. No farmer would put them in, but it was, uh, it's sometimes it's just fun to think outside the box from what, uh, that sort of marrying that brain power of scientists and farmer together. Farmers, I think, uh, are, are the most inventive. I mean, give them a problem uh, to solve with farm equipment and, and tools. You know, you got a farm shop. What can we do? And we came up with that. And USDA went, oh, my goodness, that actually works. And so that was that was fun. And then that, that then allows us to see what's happening to those chemicals that are on the system, to see what's happening to the nitrate fertilizer as it's in the system, how it percolates through the soil and ultimately, you know, ends up in our groundwater. And then that was part of the farmers farming system trials that you guys are famous for, or what was a little bit of the history yeah. of the farming system trials? Yeah, that's originally where where they where they got placed. Um, that, that farming system trial started back in 1980. It was a reaction to a report that came out from the USDA um, where they were looking at um, a survey that they did with farmers and they said, okay, and this was again way back in 1980, if if organic agriculture makes more sense biologically, and we could ask that same question today, why aren't more farmers doing it? Obviously there's barriers to adoption. So they were asking farmers, what are the barriers to adopting some of these new technologies? And one of the, the comments that they heard the most from farmers was that um, farmers believed at the time that nitrogen was gonna be a limiting factor in organic production uh, because they said organic production is so heavily based on animal manures if you know, if you don't have animals, there's a there's a big swath of the grain belt uh, doesn't really have uh, or is not in close proximity to animal units that would sustain the millions of acres of grain crops that are out there. So they said it's it's not going to work. How do we do that? Uh, some of us uh, remember way back to uh, uh, middle school uh, biology class where we learned that. 78% uh, of the air that we breathe is nitrogen. Nitrogen is not a limiting uh, element in, on planet Earth. Where it is, the form it's in, uh, 
certainly can be limiting to plant growth, but uh, nitrogen as, as, a, as an element is not limiting. And then we also understand that we have legumes that can take nitrogen out of the air and fix it in the soil. So how do we begin to balance these things together in a system uh, and take a systems approach to, to uh, productivity? Uh, and we started the farming systems trial based on that. The farming systems trial is a grain experiment. Uh, the reason we chose grain, uh, not because we think uh, people eat it or that it's a great food crop necessarily or, 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 or not, but we know that when you look at a big chunk of the world's uh, agronomic soils, they're producing corn and soybeans. And so if we can impact the way corn and soybeans are being produced, we can impact a large chunk of acres. And if you're looking at it from a, a global perspective, that makes sense. So, I mean, we could have worked with rutabagas, but I mean, how many acres of impact are you really gonna have with rutabagas So, uh, um, or parsley or something? So we worked with grain crops and uh, it, it's been an exciting experiment. It's the longest running side-by-side -side comparison of organic to conventional in the world. Uh, the plots are now what, 40, uh, 44 years old. So uh, exciting that we have this long-term history. Um, I think we've had over uh, 50 PhD uh, scientists get their PhD work done in that, that experiment. We open it up to the world to come out and uh, superimpose their, their experiments into our, into our systems trial and collect more and more data around, uh, uh, around soil health and how the way we farm is, is changing. Uh, the soil. And you can literally see now that, that the project is, is over 40 years old, you can literally see the differences in the soil uh, simply with your with the naked eye. Uh, we've, changed, we've changed the soil by farming it in a different way. So if you can change it in a positive way, we know we can change it in a negative way too. So I, I think what that's saying is we as farmers in the interactions we have with that resource of soil, have the ability to improve it, uh, degrade it, and potentially keep it the same, although it's really hard to keep something the same. That's true about anything in the world. It's really hard to stay status quo forever. It usually is getting better or getting worse. So what are we doing? Uh, how do we begin to shift that and turn the corner and start improving soil health on a, on a global scale? versus uh, degrading soil on a global scale, which is what we've been doing for the last uh, 60 years or so. And then where, where does hemp fit in all that? I know you had a pretty good hemp plot going on there a couple of years ago. Is that still continuing or what's the status of the hemp research? Yeah, we, we're doing hemp research. Uh, our hemp research is a little bit different than what other people are doing uh, because what we're doing is we're looking at uh, the ability to use hemp in a rotation to improve soil health. Everything we do is based on soil health. So we're not looking at the market of hemp. We're not looking at CBD qualities of hemp, although there are those. We're not looking at industrial hemp per se for how we're gonna use it in industry. Other people are doing that. We're saying, if we're gonna grow hemp, how do we do it in a way that improves soil health? Now, are there, are there uh, mechanisms that hemp brings to the table biologically that improve soil health? Are there things that uh, hemp does that degrade soil health? And if so, how do we mitigate that in a, a cropping rotation that uh, since we know hemp is going to be a crop of the future? And then uh, another question here I thought of along our conversation was uh, 
I've done a lot of testing of the organic versions of Roundup and that. Have you guys done anything like that? Like the neem oils and the fatty acids and whatever else you can think of, the vinegars? Has there, have you played with any of that? We, we do and we don't. Uh, one thing Rodale Institute does not do is product testing. So we don't do contract research. Uh, we don't take a product that uh, Lauren Steinlidge created in, in, in your garage and you say, hey, I want you to test that and I'll pay you to test it. We don't do that. Uh, we don't, uh, we don't uh, try to uh, support in the marketplace and say this product is better than that. Pro we don't do any of that. That's not what we do. Do those products get used from time to time in a research experiment? That's quite possible. Um, we try to avoid that one-to-one -one substitution. Oh, I can't use uh, the, far, the, the uh, ag chemical Roundup, but here's this other organic version of that. Uh, I, I think that that sort of falls into a, a category that's not in the best interest of soil health and farmers long-term. Uh, sometimes those things can be stopgap measures, but usually you're treating symptoms, not treating the problem. And we'd rather step back, look at the whole system and say, is there something we could do to our system that would improve that weed management? So for example, would, would, be, would adding small grains, a two, year, two years of small grain in the rotation, or does adding hay in the rotation really change the weed dynamics in a way that then allows uh, cultivation or the roller crimper to work better. Uh, we're looking at that rather than saying, how do we get something in a jug that we can spray to kill, kill weeds? Because again, killing weeds isn't our goal. Making soil healthy and make, making people healthy is our goal. Uh, managing weeds in a system is, of course, a task that we have to do as farmers, but that's not our goal. Uh, our goal is not to kill weeds. Uh, I would say there's a different goal where I have, um, I have a place where my grandkids play and, and uh, right next to it, there's some poison ivy. Do I spray that with vinegar? Heck yeah. You know, there's, I, I'm not planting anything. I'm not eating that. Uh, that goal is just to get rid of poison ivy. I have no other goal around making that soil healthy and that fence row where the poison ivy is. I just don't want my grandkids, uh, my, my daughter-in-law complaining because they're puffed up with poison ivy. So I understand that. So, you know, that's a different scenario, but for the most part, our goal isn't just to kill weeds. We've got another question. Ludmila just had a question on how did that stuff work? Not worth a crap, pardon the French there, but uh, I mean, <laughs> the, the, main, the main reason I like testing stuff like that is just to see what we have to compare with. You know, because your your conventional mindset is that's going to be the easy button where they go, and I just I want to know how that competes. You know, I'm I'm on the same mindset there. We need to figure out the rotation and all that, and how to rotate in and out of the crop. You know, perennial seems to be the hardest. You know, like alfalfas and stuff like that is the hardest. But then I'm also the mindset I don't know if we truly have to kill all that stuff. Use suppression techniques, and that for me is probably the biggest thing. And that uh, we did have another question there. I think uh, I, I, I might, I might, I might comment on that, Lauren. We have seen vi vinegar work in in vegetable production in certain crops where you get an outbreak of weeds and you need to burn them back if you can shield your main crop. I mean, vinegar is just an acid. It's going to burn off uh, at the surface anything that's that's above anything that's green and growing. Uh, your crop, there's no uh, vinegar resistance or anything like that with your cash crop. But there there can be times where, as a rescue operation, it makes sense to go in there with some. Um, 
ag vinegar and spray a high value vegetable crop. We have seen some success there. I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't say one product is better than another, uh, but sometimes that technology can be a tool in, in a high value crop that makes sense where you can't get in there to cultivate right because of the, the mulch or the, the foot traffic or the picking area, however it's laid out and you just got to burn those weeds off then, then vinegar can do that. It will burn off anything that's above ground, but it'll regrow. But sometimes, you know, with, with veg crops, you only, you only need to burn it off for like, you need two weeks when, when you're going to knock that back. So you can get your broccoli harvested. Uh, it can make sense. Yeah. And I mean, that, that, that'd be right where we're at. You know, we've seen, you know, we've maintained clover over six, seven years in a standing crop and you just, you keep knocking it back and it takes the right tools and mindset to figure some of that stuff out. So uh, we did have, I think Ed had a suggestion there for roller crimper, a battery powered uh, autonomous version. Well, I can tell you Ed, that's being worked on right now because I'm bolting one up hopefully next week. So there, there'll be a, be a robotic roller crimper hopefully within a week here. So, and uh, I, get, I guess the final question I'm going to have is what's next for Jeff? Retirement, enjoy the grandkids. Yeah, well, of course, that's 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 part of it. I don't think I'll ever uh, lose touch with uh, the work of Roto Institute and, and, and what uh, I've been, uh, again, blessed to be part of over the over the decades. I'll continue to do that. Um, I think what's what's really exciting to me is that we're seeing more and more young people who are coming into agriculture, getting energized and excited around the technologies that we've been talking about for the last hour and a half or so. Um, we see that in, in in food marketing. The young people coming into food marketing aren't interested in marketing, uh, you know, trick cereal to sugar cereal to kids. I mean, I don't want to pick on tricks. Uh, they're all kind of the same. Uh, so we're, but we're seeing young people saying, how can we change the way we're processing food so that we give people something that they're going to eat, but still make it healthy. Uh, how, we see that with farmers. How do we farm? We're not saying that dad or grandpa did things wrong. We're just saying we want to do them differently. And, and the marketplace is going to reward us for that. And so I, I think the future is so bright in, in agriculture. We're seeing young people in at, at universities coming out and talking about uh, uh, journalism around agriculture and how do we how do we get more podcasts and get more information around this information out to farmers so seeing young people getting engaged with every skill set that they have from ag lending uh, right on through um, marketing and, and, and farming in between. We're seeing medical professionals beginning to gravitate towards functional medicine and saying wait a minute maybe maybe the idea of just pushing pharmaceuticals on people, isn't the best plan. And maybe there's a way that we can balance that with lifestyle changes, change their diet and get the chemicals out of the system, get them on an exercise program. It's not all just food. It's, it's this whole package of how do we begin to improve everybody and the planet at the same time. Young people can get, get, get their minds wrapped around that and their energy. And so even though, yeah, I'm getting older and I'm starting to step back, seeing other people step in and take charge uh, has really been exciting to me. I think that's the perfect way to finish it. I mean, that's where I'm at. You know, hopefully the next generations here are picking up, taking what we learned and do better. And, yeah, uh, exactly. You know, it's our role there to help them hopefully avoid some of the hiccups and hurdles we had, but they're up, they're going to have to experience some of it no matter what. And that, and uh, 
I can't thank you enough here, Jeff. Uh, it's been a true honor, and uh, I think Mitchell Horrell will be hosting next week. Uh, if we got any final questions, uh, hurry up and spit them out. Otherwise, I'm sure you can reach out to one of us, and we'll try to get you answers. Rachel, I think you can uh, take it away. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks to everybody who was in attendance. Really appreciate your time. Great questions tonight. So thanks, everybody. and. Uh, Look forward Absolutely. to next time. So.